questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Good morning. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, Katie Morton, licensed marriage and family therapist, here to answer all of the questions that I could pull about mental health this week. Um, And if you are new, welcome. We're happy that you're here. Now, each week, I pull questions from my podcast channel's community tab. Now, I know for a lot of people, they're like, what is that? So if you go over to YouTube and you search for Opinions That Don't Matter, that's the name of the podcast I have with my husband, Sean. On that channel, you can hit community. So when you go to the channel, it'll have these tabs across top, hit community. And on Sunday mornings, I ask you for your questions. Um, And I pull the first eight with the most thumbs ups. And the last two are just random. I just scroll and point and pick them that way. So hopefully that gives everybody an opportunity to get their questions answered. But today I have a really exciting announcement. If you missed it the other day, my new book is available for pre-order now. It's called Traumatize. Isn't she pretty? I had more say over this cover than I did the last one. And it's not to say that I don't love the last cover, but she's just so pretty. And it's available now. You can go to Amazon or anywhere books are sold and search for Katie Morton Traumatized and you will find it. So it is called Traumatized, Identify, Understand, and Cope with PTSD and Emotional Stress. Now this book talks about everything from how to diagnose PTSD and complex PTSD. What are the differences? I talk a lot about dissociation um, and then obviously the healing stuff, right? Like uh, inner child work and other treatment modalities that like EMDR and things like that, that uh, help with those who struggle with trauma. Now, I just hope it's really helpful. I, so many of you shared your stories and that was wonderful. Um, So thank you for that. I also talk about transgenerational trauma, how we can pass it down to our children, how we can stop doing that. I'm just looking at the chapter titles and oh the science of trauma memories. I dig into where they are in our brain and how, why they're sometimes hard to recall and triggers how do we you know how do we better manage them what are they all of that stuff so pick up your copy today well not really pick up your copy pre-order today it will be released in the states september 7th and i believe in the uk and other parts of the world it's toward the end of september i think it's like september 24th or something like that um so pre-order yours now i'm so excited that it's out into the world and i hope that everybody loves it and finds it helpful Okay, without further ado, let's get into your questions. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, if you're comfortable talking about it, have you ever suffered from a mental illness? I know therapists often say that they know better, but don't necessarily do better. Do you find that to be true? But this is a great question. Um, I'm going to tell you what I remember because I, I have been on an antidepressant when I was probably like 16 or 17 uh, because I felt like I was depressed. And I was seeing my therapist at the time and looking back, it wasn't done properly. (laughs) Like as a clinician now, I'm like, oh, that's not, that's not ethical. But my therapist, um, Sue, she was doing the best she could with what she knew, I'd assume. Um, She, because I grew up in a really small town, you guys, like less than 10,000 people. So we didn't have a ton of therapists. We didn't have a ton of psychiatry. Like, you know, we had things, but it was like very limited. And so she... I don't remember her giving me any like homework or cognitive behavioral strategies to help better manage my depression. She essentially just talked with me, asked questions, stuff like that. 
And then when I wasn't getting better and I was like, I just feel so down and I didn't enjoy anything anymore, she referred me to my regular doctor and told them what they should prescribe for me. Can you imagine? She was not a doctor. She was, I think she was like, just like me, like just a therapist. So has no right to say that <clears throat> and tell them what to prescribe. My doctor just prescribed what she told me. I think it was Zoloft, like maybe five milligrams, 10 milligrams. I don't remember specifically. But um, but yeah, so I would assume in order to have that happen, I had to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Like that's what I would assume now. And I was on Zoloft for six months. I titrated up and then titrated off of it because I didn't like how it made me feel. Um, it didn't, I felt like I didn't feel anything. And I was like, I'd rather feel bad than nothing. But you know, that was just my experience. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's what I remember from like childhood when I was a teen and doing that. And then as an adult, I mean, I don't know from what I know from what Jana has told me, and I ask a lot of questions, is I haven't been diagnosed with anything, but I definitely am now more on the anxious side than the depressed side. I rarely have like down or negative thoughts about things, but I, d I do get anxious at night and it'll be hard to sleep sometimes or I'll feel like I'll just Sean's like you're you call it overheating where I get like I'll get overly anxious and I'll start like sweating you know um yeah so I guess that that's my experience like my personal experience and I'm trying to think if there's anything else I mean as a teenager too when I was depressed <clears throat> which you might be like this doesn't make any sense but I definitely have more of like an irritable depression I uh would like go running and stuff and I think that if I hadn't gotten help when I did like it could have turned into like exercise addiction or potential eating disorder stuff, which I think is why I understand eating disorders uh, maybe better than some people. Um, also, I had some really close friends of mine have eating disorders growing up. And so anyway, that, that's kind of my, I guess, I mean, I don't really have anything else to share, but I'm always open to talking about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, I think more people should talk about it. And I do agree because I say that all the time too, just because I know better doesn't mean I do better because I'm still human. I think there's, it, it'd be like saying that because I'm a doctor, if I was a medical doctor, that I never catch a cold. Like that's not possible. That doesn't happen um, because we're all human. We're all fallible. We all struggle. And I think that instead of pretending that we have it all together or that we have this perfect life or anything or anybody even thinking that and continuing that, that like false belief it's more important that we share that we struggle too <clears throat> i mean obviously not sharing too much about yourself but if you share or even just experiencing something i think it makes us better at our jobs because then i know what it's been like for you or for someone else and i can better empathize uh sympathize and help you manage right because i have like more insider information um so yeah so that's my story I'm always open to talking more about it if you guys have follow-up questions. Like I don't, I don't have any secrets. I don't, I'm not embarrassed about anything when it comes to stuff like that, especially because, you know, like I said, when you talk about it more, it's, it's important. We're all human. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. And it says, Hey Katie, is fear of crying during a session something that should be talked about? Every time I go to therapy, I purposely don't talk too much about the things that make me teary or I play down how I feel about what we're talking about. It frustrates me after a session as I feel like I'm getting nowhere. How can I change the way I seem to put more barriers up when I'm in session? Thanks for all that you do. And an add on to my question, I've been working with this therapist for just over two years now. So it's not like it's because I don't know her. Is this a sign to change therapists or is it just me? 
I generally see crying as a weakness for me, not for others. So maybe that's got something to do with it. I thought this was a great question. There's a couple comments that I'll get into after kind of in the same vein. So yes, this is something that you should talk about because here's the the way that I see this question is the fear of crying during a session. So it's not like, because I hear from a lot of people like, I just can't cry. In this particular situation, we should always bring it up, by the way. But if we're afraid of crying, and even the more insight that you gave, like you say, you see it as a weakness, that would be what I would dig into. Because there's something in there, and I'm curious, like, who told you that crying is weak? Parents often say that, especially not not that it's only to boys, but a lot of times to boys, they'll say, like, boys don't cry, you know. Or even, like, one of my old coaches for softball back in the day used to be, like, girls don't cry, rub it. Like, if you got hit, you know, he'd be like, rub it off, get in, the, get in there, do your thing. Like, it was like you couldn't show weakness, you know, like as if crying's weakness, right? So... <clears throat> Anyway, a lot of people believe that. And so we could have heard that message in, in therapy. That's what I would want to dig into. So I'd bring this up with your therapist and say, hey, I find, you know, that I think of crying as a sign of weakness in me. And so I purposefully don't like to talk too much about things that make me teary or I downplay, you know, when I'm in session with you so that I don't get too worked up and I don't know how to overcome this. So that's where that's the beautiful thing about therapy is as the patient, we don't have to have the answers. We just have to know what the issue is and be able to communicate it as much as possible. And that's what you're doing here. And so I would encourage you to let your therapist know about this. Tell them, hey, you know, I see crying as a weakness and I fear doing it in session. Help me, essentially, because that's our job, right? So once we know that that's the problem, and then I assume your therapist will be like, oh, that explains a lot, right? Or they already kind of knew and they're glad that you have realized it yourself. So I would definitely bring it up because the way that we're going to change these barriers or what I would call a defense mechanism is to understand them first, right? We can't change what we don't understand. And so I think it will be really helpful for you to figure out where this is coming from. Is this a message we heard from our parents? Is this a message that we tell ourselves? Like if we, if we cry that, uh, I don't know, that, that we are somehow lesser than, are we too weak? We can't handle life. Like what is it? What's the message that we tell ourselves about crying or, or maybe even showing emotion? I'd be, then I'd be curious, like, does this move over into other emotions or is it only purely like sadness, crying, overwhelm? Um, but yeah, I'd want to dig into where that came from, where we heard that, why we still believe it. And then we would fight back to like essentially come up with other evidence <clears throat> to support that, crying isn't weakness. Like how could we prove that crying is strength, right? Because there's something, I don't know, societally, some things just kind of get out of control. I feel like, and this is one of them, that crying is a sign of weakness. Whereas I feel like sometimes crying is a sign of strength, like it's vulnerability. I'm being courageous. I am, you know, allowing myself to experience life fully. I'm not like stuffing it down or hiding from it. And I don't know, something very powerful about that. Anyway, I won't get too much into that, but let's get into the comments. Now, one of the comments said, or the opposite. What if you wish you could cry? See this, I hear this a lot too. Wish you could cry in session, but your body won't let you bring it up also because this inability, there's a ton of different like roots of this, right? I always talk about like the root of the root, like getting to the, the bone, the bare bones reason or the whatever seed was planted in childhood that has now blossomed into this symptom of, I can't cry. Now, 
when we can't, like, it's not that we fear crying or we steer away from things that would be triggering to us and make us want to cry. In this case, they're saying like, I wish I could cry, but my body won't let me. Let your therapist know about that. And my guess would be in the same vein as a person who, you know, fears crying or sees crying as a sign of weakness, someone, either you got a message from a parent that like crying isn't okay. For instance, I have a lot of patients over the years that were like, yeah, my parents just like weren't there, like emotionally unavailable, right? Where crying did you no good because they weren't going to support you in the way that you needed. Or your parents were just absent. So even if you cried as a child, no one came to your aid like they should. No one held you and rubbed your back and told you it's going to be okay, right? We didn't get any of those like good parent messages. And so as adults, we've completely cut off from our emotions because what good do they do us, right? They don't help us in any way now. So we've cut them off. And so we have to get back in touch with them. That's why you feel like your body won't let you is because we've trained it to not potentially. Um, and obviously that's just one option, but I'm just giving you an example of what I know and see from, from you guys over the years and from my practice. And so we kind of have to, the way that we would overcome that is talk about it in therapy, figure out where it's coming from and learn more about our emotions, which I know doesn't sound very exciting or um, easy. And it's, it's not, it's kind of tedious and it's difficult, but it does get better. And so stick with it, you know, give it a try. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to getting to know our emotions, some of it's just identifying them. Like, what do we feel? Like, hmm, let's take a second. Everybody, let's just take a second. How are we feeling? We can pull out our feelings wheel. You can go to feelingswheel.com and it's a beautiful feelings wheel um, that gives you a ton of feelings. You can start in the middle and work your way out. Um, But let me think, let me give you some of what I'm feeling. I am feeling honestly relaxed, but also a little tired because I'm doing, I'm recording this early because we have uh, some people coming over to work on the house later and I knew that that would disrupt this. And I feel... Yeah, I think tired because we're about to take vacation and I, I really am looking forward to that. So it's kind of like excitement mixed with exhaustion. <laughs> but how are you feeling? Check in. We don't do that enough. And I don't even do that enough. Don't pretend that, again, like I said in the first question, just because I know better doesn't mean I do better. But doing that work will get you, um, will slowly allow you to better know your emotions, name them, and yeah, get to know how they feel for you and you'll slowly get better in touch with them. And then you'll be able to cry at some point, I promise. Okay. Now another as an add-on, I don't really avoid the topics, but more I shut down my emotions so that I won't cry. I suddenly act like nothing happened and I don't feel anything anymore. And so I think this is kind of like the, your body won't let you, like you shut it down because it doesn't feel safe. And so again, it's really important to bring these issues up, to talk them out and to figure out where they're coming from. Because in the learning of what the root is, so when we realize what the root of the issue is, that's where we can then take our skills and tools and dig in to make it better or to overcome it. Back to what I'd said earlier, we don't, we can't change what we don't understand. And so the first part is just understanding, figuring out where it's coming from, what's happening, and why we do this because it's a defense mechanism it's protective we're puffer fishing but why what, what's causing that you know and so i think that that's like the acting like nothing happened where'd that come from you know what what caused it and 
can we maybe get better in touch with our feelings? Do we need to do some inner child work because it's this issue is based in attachment? Like I said, like if we cried, no one came when we were a child or if we cried, did we get hit? Was it like, you know, shut up? Or did we get emotionally abused? Were they like, shut up, you stupid, you know, child, stop making noise. Um, the old adage, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but children are better seen and not heard is such an abusive phrase. It's like children are little humans and we should treat them as such. And obviously there needs to be boundaries in parenting and there needs to be, you know, parenting happening. But that doesn't mean that we can't help our children better understand their emotions and accept them. And I think that parents never did that. And that can, that could be why a lot of us struggle with our emotions in general is because no one ever talked to us about them. No one ever allowed us to feel them openly and helped us name them when we were younger. So we have to do all this emotional intelligence work as adults. And yeah, unfortunately, that's most of us are in that bucket. So don't feel like you're suffering in a way that no one else understands or that something's wrong with you. A lot of us go through that, okay? And then the final add-on question says, what will happen if we do cry in session? And what do therapists think when we cry in session? First of all, it's very common. <clears throat> what do I think? I, I think, honestly, it depends on the situation. Like if I have a patient that can't really get anything out because they're crying so hard, I will think maybe we need longer sessions or maybe we need more frequent sessions because in order to get that, because crying I see as kind of like a, an overflow and pun intended because when we feel so emotional that like the crying is because I've had patients where it's so the crying is so hardcore that we can't really get the words out and we can't really do anything in therapy because we're just we're just dumping right <clears throat> they dump a few things and then just cry about it and that's important because in therapy you need to feel like you can dump everything that you are experiencing and I can hold that for you. Meaning it's not too much. I'm not going to turn away. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm going to participate with you and I'm going to validate you and be okay with this, right? We're going to say that I'm going to hopefully get the message over to you that these emotions are okay and valid. <clears throat> now, when, and patients cry all the time. I mean, I do have some days, I guess, back when I was seeing like eight or 10 patients a day, Every once in a blue moon, I'd have a day where nobody cried, but usually at least one person cries, okay? So that's how common, almost every day, somebody's crying. And sometimes a lot of, like multiple people. But so if you cry, I just think that we've, uh, A, there's something to dig into there. B, if it's so hard that we can't get any through anything else, then I'll think maybe we should have longer sessions or more frequent sessions. And then I guess C is that we've kind of, not like hit a nerve, because I don't even like that phrasing, but it's like we've, stumbled upon something that probably needs more work or is so emotionally charged for you that we maybe have to go a little slower. Like I'm assessing the overwhelm to make sure that I'm not the person causing it, that I didn't push you too far, ask you too many intense questions or move too fast. Instead, you know, I want to make sure that I'm going at a pace that feels good for you, that you can get teary, but still push through. Like it's a balance with therapy where I'm, I want to challenge you, but not overwhelm. And so it's, it's more of that. Like I'm just assessing how well I'm doing and how well you're doing and how we're working together to get you the, you know, to feeling better. But crying is fine. It's a very normal thing. I don't think if you, as long as you can talk through it and keep going, there's no problem in therapy at all. And even if you can't, it, it can't talk through it or can't get through it, that's just more helpful information as we move forward. That makes sense? I hope so. Okay, let's move on to question number three. 
And it says, hi, Katie, how do you know what's the most important thing to bring up in therapy? How do you know? I have so much to talk about, so much that happens in between sessions and 60 minutes doesn't really feel like enough. I know that there was a similar question you answered in an old video. And one of the things that you mentioned is that we would need more frequent sessions, but I can't afford more frequent sessions. I can only afford once every two weeks, no insurance coverage, poor experiences with charity clinics, etc. Okay, fair enough. I try to journal and decide on which one feels more pressing, but sometimes I just don't know where to start. And I let, and I let my therapist start somewhere, which is great if I didn't have a million other things that I want to talk about running at the back of my mind. Okay. Um, and then another comment says, okay, this will be for an add-on, but it says, what if I, but I also feel like the fact that I suffer from anxiety and most of the time I just have thoughts running through my mind that I just can't stop worrying or thinking. I feel like I might, that might not be enough. What do we do then? Is that something that I should mention to my therapist? So we'll get into that secondarily, but the first component is like, what's most important to bring up in therapy? And my best advice is what's bothering you most right now? That's what I tell all my patients. I'm like, what is upsetting you on the daily? Because everybody's a little bit different. Like some of my patients will say, oh, you know, because um, I see eating disorder patients a lot, right? But the eating disorder won't even be the main component. A lot of them are like, oh, the anxiety of it, right? Like I just feel anxious all the time. And I, I don't know if I have like OCD because eating disorders and OCD share a lot of symptoms, by the way often they'll be like i you know i obsess about this and it's just it's just taking over my life or i'll have a patient that comes in and is like hey i'm really struggling in school um like i had a patient recently this is like probably mid-covid an old patient came back because school like she had to do something in person i forget what it was and she had social anxiety back you know when i first started seeing her and she was like having to go back in person and like turn in or take that test or whatever it was i forget what it was but anyway she was like that sent me into a panic attack and now i'm having a tough time leaving my house so we dug into like why the social anxiety is coming back with such a vengeance and how come you know going to the grocery store is hard now and it never was before you know and just digging into all that came up because of that situation so I think the most important thing is what's affecting you the most now. And that might be hard because you're like, oh my God, it's so many things. But if we take a step and you might not be able to do this and that's okay. You can just talk about the symptoms in therapy. That's completely fair. But if you're able, if you have the insight, it can be helpful to like in that instance of my patient who used to have really bad social anxiety, then COVID kind of, she took a break because she was like, I feel fine. And I, I wasn't supportive of that, but that was a decision she made. And so we went with it. But then if you're able to dig in, right? So she could have just, we could have stopped with the, oh, going to the grocery store has gotten hard and that never used to be hard. And we could figure out how to circumvent that. How do we give her tools to help her feel better? But if we stop and think for a second and we're like, wait, let's consider what triggered this or when this started. So I started tracking back with her. Like, when did this happen? What? because she didn't realize that it was because she had to go into the uh, school thing that time. She didn't recognize that that's what triggered it. But we had to dig in to figure that out. And then that trigger gave us more information. We were able to to dig in and not not to share too much, but that like bullying had played a role and her her particular instance with social anxiety had more to do with her self-confidence and going back to school even though she hadn't been, I mean because she hadn't been in so long was so triggering. So anyways, all I'm saying is sometimes it can help for us to track back because then what we worked on a lot was like, 
uh, positive messages in her head with her self-talk to help build up confidence, had her do some building mastery things um, on her own and also, you know, compliment other people, be around people who are supportive and loving, all of that stuff. Um, and so I think long story short, what I'm saying is whatever's affecting you most, bring that up. Make sure that you always bring that up every session because every session therapist will usually start like, let's check in. How was your week? That's where I want you to say, hey, you know, uh, my depression thoughts are worse or, oh, hey, um, you know, I feel like I might have PTSD because I have these kinds of symptoms or whatever. And that's, that's when you you speak your truth, you talk about what's happening and what you're experiencing and what's bothering you most. And then if you have insight after sharing those symptoms, then say, you know, when I was doing some thinking and journaling and I really feel like maybe my, I don't know, my PTSD comes from the fact that I was bullied all throughout middle school or whatever, right? If you have any insight into that, share it. That's what's helpful. And that will help move therapy forward more quickly. But at the beginning of each session, you're going to have to guide it. And if you don't, your therapist will continue to guide it. And then you'll continue to feel like the things that are important or the things you want to work on don't get worked on because we, we can't read minds, right? And I would assume just like me, she's just going off of the notes that she has in your file and what you worked on last week and building on that, which can be great if we're on the right path. But maybe you need to create a new treatment plan together where you go through all of your goals, which is where you can dump like all the stuff you want to talk about and put it into, you know, kind of a, a strategic plan together. So maybe you ask for that too, or, you know, you guide it each and every session and make sure that all the issues are addressed. Cool? I hope so. Okay. There's a comment on this again. Like I said, that I also feel like I suffer from anxiety. So it's like all the thoughts just keep swirling, can't stop worrying or thinking. I feel like I'm, um, that might not be enough. What do we do then? Is this something that I should mention to my therapist? Yes. Mention that to your therapist. Mention everything to your therapist. I know I get asked that all the time. Like, should I tell my therapist this? If you're wondering, the answer is yes. Because the more information a therapist can have, the more they can help you. We can't offer you support if we don't know what's really going on. And so the more you can share, the better. And in this case, I really think that mentioning this to your therapist will be helpful because it could be that our anxiety is making our progress in therapy stop because we're so overwhelmed. And if we had some tools or maybe medication as an option, like there's different things we'd want to look into so that we can then fully participate in therapy and not feel so overwhelmed or like our mind is running and worrying and, you know, all of that stuff. So that that's really my advice. Bring it up with your therapist, figure out, then you can figure out some tools because then they'll know. Again, therapists can't help us with what they don't know we're struggling with. And so the more we can share with them, the better. Okay, let's move on to question number four. This question says, hello, Katie, can therapy make dissociation or any other symptoms worse? It actually can. We'll get into that. Is this just a part of it gets worse before it gets better? Yes. Ever since I've been working with my therapist on feeling more, I've started dissociating more intensely, of course, because now you're experiencing the feelings that you're, you were trying to ignore. I told my therapist that I'm scared of doing this work, of feeling more as it's overwhelming and only makes me function less. She challenged me that if I don't want to do this anymore, then what's the goal of our time together and that it is possible to learn to feel without being overwhelmed. It pushed me to be okay with trying to feel more again, but it's still scary. Is therapy always this hard? It's a great question. And therapy is hard. Anybody who tells you it's easy is lying or not doing the real work. 
It's fucking hard. And it does get worse before it gets better. But here's here's something I would kind of push back on with your therapist. Because she sounds great. It sounds like she's challenging you, but it sounds like she might be pushing you a little bit too far. And so what I would encourage you to do is to tell her that you just feel overwhelmed and you dissociate because the goal of therapy is always to prevent us from dissociating, meaning we need you to stay present so that you can process things, whatever it is, emotions, situations, past pain and abuse or hurt or whatever. Um, We need you to be present and dissociating is the opposite of that. So letting her know that you're fine being challenged, but you feel like it's a little bit too fast and too much because you struggle to stay present. Now, my advice would be that we have to slowly dig into feelings. I would probably have you, these would be things that I would attempt to do with you homework wise, or even in session is number one, again, that feelings wheel and having you identify, I don't know, two to three emotions a day. And then you know, three to four to five and try to get you up to identifying at least five each day easily. From there, then I would have you put that feeling word into a sentence without using it. So it'd be, um, you know, like if I was talking about, let's say I feel irritated. So if I was going to put that in a sentence and not use the word irritated, I would say feels like upset, anger, and frustration everything gets on my nerves. That would be how I'd describe irritated personally. And that would be it. And so we're getting to know our feelings. We're getting to know how they, how we experience them and what other feelings words are attached to them. And then I would take it a step further where it's like, where am I experiencing this in my body? Irritation to me, I like clench my fists and I can feel it in my throat. You might be different. But doing that work slowly, I feel like would be a little bit better and hopefully prevent you from getting too overwhelmed so much so that you're dissociating because that again is not the goal. And so let your therapist know you think it's going a little bit fast and you'd like to slow it down. And you can even offer up some of the things that I offered here and see, maybe you've already done that work. If that's the case, maybe we just need, um, we need a little bit more time. Like when we dive into the feelings and the the situations, like maybe maybe I'm not understanding what why you're dissociating, right? Maybe you're dissociating in session because you're finally talking about things. I don't know, but I think that overwhelm, we're going to have to figure out why it's happening and get us to a place where we're not doing that every time so that we can stay present so that things can get better. But I'm glad she's challenging you and I'm proud of you for sticking it out, but let her know that you're fine being challenged, but you just, it's too much. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that, hi, Katie, I have a follow-up question. I keep having panic attacks during my therapy sessions. Does this mean I'm getting worse or is it just a sign that I am processing things? I'm scared to explore my thoughts and feelings because of this, but I don't want to shut down or numb out again. Is this normal? Thank you for all that you do. Love from Zimbabwe. Ooh, Zimbabwe. Okay, this is a great question. Now, you should not, again, same as the last one, you should not be having panic attacks in session. I'm not saying they won't happen. Like we will dissociate, we will have panic attacks in session, but it should not be happening all the time. That means that it's too much. We're doing too much in session. They're pushing us too far. And I don't want any of us to get re-traumatized or feel so overwhelmed that we can't stay present. And honestly, it's almost like that session doesn't count, right? Because we're too overwhelmed. We don't even have any memory of it. And so no, it doesn't mean you're getting worse. I think it means that you're doing too much too fast in therapy and so what i would what i would encourage you to do is to let your therapist know 
that this is happening and that you feel overwhelmed. And what we really can do from that then is maybe, again, slow things down. I know we all want to rush through therapy and feel better immediately, but it's just not how it works. Like we can only work as fast as our brain will allow us and as much as our nervous system can tolerate. And so we will have to kind of, it's like, it's such an interesting dance in therapy because we're, we want to push us a little bit, but not too much. And so if we start to feel overwhelmed, maybe we have a panic attack. We let our therapist know, okay, we don't do that much. We know that that's too much for our system. But then maybe in two or three months, we try that kind of level of pressure again, and it might not cause a panic attack, right? We're getting better and we're able to stay present more when it comes to the dissociation. The first part of this question, like maybe we have better grounding techniques on board so that we don't feel the need to pull the ripcord so quickly. There's all these things that we'll get better at. We're like building new muscles. But if we're having panic attacks and dissociating every single session, we either need to slow the what the therapist is doing like slow the therapeutic process a little bit or and i will throw this in and i know you guys aren't going to like this but we have to try harder i've had patients who prefer to dissociate or have pan not have panic attacks that's not true but dissociate or just pull out and they will let themselves do it to which i have to challenge them to stay present because if they don't then it's not worth us getting together. And I know it feels easier to pull away, but it's not actually beneficial or therapeutic. And so I have to kind of argue with them about this and find ways for them to ground and help them ground and see if there are any tools or techniques that I can utilize in session to help keep them present as well. Um, But yeah, sometimes we have to fight harder to stay there. So those are my thoughts. Therapists are probably going too hard, too fast, or we're not trying hard enough because it kind of feels good maybe to dissociate. With the panic attacks, nobody likes having them. I think it's just too much and overwhelming. Please tell your therapist and slow things down just a little bit, okay? Let's move on to question number five. It says, Katie, what's your opinion on personality tests like the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs? I'm an INFJ and an Enneagram 4 wing 6. Also, my love language is mainly gift-giving. All of these things are very different to all of the types that my family is. Can that explain why I often feel misunderstood and the odd one out or why I struggle with certain mental uh, mental struggles that don't apply to, say, my siblings despite growing up the same? And if so, is there a way I can use the knowledge of my types to better communicate with my family and adapt to each other and understand each other's needs? I hope this question makes sense. Thanks for all that you do, Katie. I always appreciate it is always appreciated so much and you enrich so many people's lives with your wonderful mind. Oh, so sweet. Okay. And there are some follow-ups to this. So my opinion on uh, personality tests and Enneagram, like Myers-Briggs and stuff, um, if it helps us better communicate and better understand ourselves, I'm all for it. I mean, I'm an Enneagram 2 wing 6 um, and I find it very interesting. The but not all of it always apply. Like there's always things that like don't apply. Right. And I think a lot of us are seeking, just hear me out. I think these things are super popular because a lot of us just want to feel understood. We want to feel seen. We want to feel heard. I, I've been contemplating doing like a, a speaking tour, you know, where I can sign books and hang out with all of you and do some Q and A's and stuff like that. And I was trying to figure out like what what would I talk about? And that is such a, that's what we all want. We want to feel seen, heard, understood, and like we're important, right? And I I was like, that's, that's really the crux of like the human condition is, is that we need that. And we don't often don't get it. 
And so I think Enneagrams and Myers-Briggs like feed into that, right? Because when we read something, again, like it's that I, I like the Enneagram better than Myers-Briggs to be honest, but you know, read these things about yourself and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times the most things that they, like it's most most common that they post the positive parts of, you know, Enneagram in particularly, but even Myers-Briggs, but there's also negative components to them. And it, so I think it's a fair balance. And if it helps you better understand yourself, then I think it will help you better communicate and interact with others and get to like work on things and move forward and feel better, right? The more we know about ourselves, the more we can grow and change into what we want to be, right? Also just know that Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams and uh, I don't know about love languages so much so, but maybe, but I know Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams, they change because we change, thank God, right? That's like what my whole career path is about that we can change. But you taking them, you know, like I took Myers-Briggs back in grad school and I don't even remember, I don't, I don't remember what, what my, I was an, I know I was an I, but I don't remember the full thing. So anyways, the take, you have to take them every so often because we're, we get different, we're, we're different, we change, we grow. And so I think that knowing your stuff can help with you and your therapy and you and your relationships. Now, if we did know what types our other people in our family or our people we're in relationships with are, that of course can help us better communicate to them and better meet them the way that they want. Especially, I mean, I've talked about love languages a lot when it comes to any kind of relationship. We often talk about love languages when it comes like marriages and dating, but I'm here to tell you it affects your friendships and familial relationships and all of that. If we know someone's love language and are able to do it, or if someone does it for us, like that's life changing and that can make the relationship that much more fulfilling and, you know, loving. And so I I think these things are great. I don't have any problem with them. I do, the problem I do have is, is social media based. I hate it. And I know hate's a strong word, but I'm using it here. I hate it when people will use this as a way to, I don't even know if it's like dismiss or explain some shitty behavior. Like, especially I don't like it when it comes to, you know, Enneagram Myers-Briggs, but also like whatever sign you are like, oh, sorry, I'm just a, I don't even know, a Scorpio. That's why I'm an asshole. I'm like, no, I think you're just an asshole. Like, I don't like it when people use that as a way to almost validate or explain why they acted so poorly. And I'm like, no, we all are responsible for our actions. So that's my only issue with it. But I think it is very helpful. I think it helps us better understand ourselves and we can better interact with other people. Now, there was a comment on this that was like, hey, Katie, as an add-on, do you think mental illness can affect the results of personality tests? 100%. Um, I scored very high on the introversion on every personality test I've ever taken, but I always wondered if it's due to me having social anxiety. And if I didn't have social anxiety, I would uh, would I score lower on introversion? Yes. I've had patients and this is, um, I do not do this testing in my office, but I've had patients tell me, and this was, there's only two and it wasn't, it wasn't Myers-Briggs. One was Myers-Briggs and one was something else that we had done. I forget. It'll come back to me. I had had a book on it for a while, but anyway, it was another personality test. Anyway, they had scored is introversion again, it wasn't social anxiety, it was actually depression. But I think that 
because we're viewing the world in a certain way, whether it's more, you know, anxious, like I don't want to be around people. So of course, if they ask that question, I'm like, absolutely not, right? It's, you're like highly unlikely that I would want to do that. Um, or if you're depressed, you're like, I'm not interested in activities. I don't want to be with other people. I don't want to run around. You know, I don't have energy. So I do believe that if we have a mental illness, it can affect our scores because it's it's how we interact with the world, right? It affects who we are. It changes how we interact. And until we get it treated, of course. And so that's, again, why taking these tests, you know, every few years is beneficial because it will change. Okay. Now, last question says, I'd also like to inquire as I do with my many therapists about your viewpoint on personality tests or indications. Recently, I was in an IOP cohort and we finally got around to talking about personality traits and the providers, oh, the providers introduced a new one, conscientiousness. Now, conscientiousness is interesting because from my understanding, it's like you're, you're being aware of other people and other situations around you and acting in a responsible manner. But I've, let me look it up because, you know, it's like one of those, one of those things. Oh, it says it's a personality trait, which is defined as a tendency to respond in certain ways under cer- certain circumstances. Is, could it be any more generalized? Um, or more generally speaking, the tendency to think, feel, and behave in a relatively enduring and consistent fashion across time in um, trait affording situations. Oh, okay. So you, it's like you do the same thing in an enduring fashion. So it doesn't really change. Interesting. So I think again, I think there's, there's helpful information in this. It's not the end all be all, but it does help us better understand ourselves and feel heard and understood and can help us in our relationships. So I have no problems with it. You guys, I think it's, it's, if it's helpful to you, then it's wonderful. And if you're not interested, it doesn't matter. I don't think it's something that we all need to know, but again, knowing about ourselves and patterns of behavior, things we like and don't like will help us in relationships with ourselves and with others because we'll have that information to share. And we can, again, like, I guess not again, but we can help people treat us the way we want to be treated. So it's like, we are able to communicate our boundaries. We, we, we are able to let them know and what we want and ask for it, or talk about the needs that we have and see if they're able to meet them. Like having that information about ourselves will allow us to better communicate and then have better relationships. Okay. Moving on to question number six, it says, hi, Katie, why don't I want life to go back to normal? During 2020, I was struggling again, but I was able to get some help this time. But now that things are slowly going back to normal in England and everyone is very optimistic, it's making me feel worse. Everyone is excited talking about their plans. It just makes me feel sad. I feel lonely and unmotivated. I want to be around people, but at the same time, I'm scared to meet people. I don't want to be too clingy. I also feel out of touch with people that I knew before, people who were just loose acquaintances or friends of friends. I hated the break from life that 2020 gave us too much time to think. But at the same time, I'm scared to start life again and take out, take it off pause. I want to make plans and meet people, but it all feels like too much effort. Do you have any advice for returning to normal life? I feel guilty that a part of me really doesn't want lockdown to end when that would make other people so happy. Thanks for all that you're doing. Of course, this is an interesting question. And I don't think you're alone. So, sorry, my chapstick knocked it over. Um, There's a couple of things. And I'm I'm just going to talk through these and I don't know which one would apply to you. So just like take what you want, you know, leave the rest kind of thing. So 
a lot of people aren't comfortable with life going back to normal because it feels overwhelming and it still feels scary. And we're having kind of like a PTSD response. Now, I'm not saying everyone was traumatized, but we did all endure a trauma this last year and a half. And so having, you know, everybody acting like things are opening up and we should feel good is not the case for a lot of people. A lot of people feel scared, overwhelmed, things are moving too fast. And so I encourage any of you out there, if you feel like you don't want life to go back to normal, you're like, oh, I don't know, it's overwhelming and eating out or seeing friends, like, what if I get it? What if I give it to them? Like, COVID still exists, it hasn't disappeared, and it's still scary for a lot of people. And so if you're feeling that way, know that you have every right to do things at your own pace in a way that feels good for you. Now, I know some from some of my patients and viewers, you guys have told me that like your job is not allowing that, but that might be the only time you interact with other people or go out, you know, into like an office space and you can wear your mask and sanitize and shut your door if you have an office and do whatever you can do to help you feel better. But know that anything else in life that you have, a you actually have a real choice over, you don't have to do things at that certain speed. It's okay for you to still isolate mostly if that's what makes you feel less anxious and a little bit better. We have to ease back in. It's not like what we thought at the beginning. Sometimes it's so ironic. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but when we first went into lockdown, we're like, oh, we can do this for like a few weeks. This is totally easy peasy. Like Sean and I were like two weeks home. We already work from home, but we were like, oh, sucks. Can't go out to dinner, but it's not bad, you know? catching up on stuff at home. People were fucking making sourdough bread and getting crazy. And then it just never ended. And so it's not like it was just that short break that we were excited about. This was a a long trauma. And so I just want you to know that it's okay to feel scared about it. Now, I realize that that's not actually what this person's question is, but I just wanted to address that because I've heard that from a lot of you that you're feeling overwhelmed with the idea of things becoming, you know, wide open again. And that's okay. Take your time. Now, with with this, it sounds like depression. Now, because you're worried about being too clingy, so we're shit talking ourselves. Then, you know, we you you didn't like the break because it gave you too much time time to think, which makes me think depression and anxiety. And then it feels like too much effort, which sounds like depression again. So my advice to you is to get more support and potentially, you know, get more tools or techniques to better manage your depression. Because it's, it sounds like you'd, if you weren't depressed, you'd actually be excited about this. Now, I could be wrong, but that's just my suspicion. These are all like little red flags. We're scared to meet new people. Maybe that's a little social anxiety, but you say you don't want to become too clingy. So it's almost like you're shit talking yourself. Like, oh, I'm going to do this. People aren't going to like me, blah, 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 all that nasty stuff we tell ourselves. And then, you know, I want to make plans to meet new people, but it feels like too much effort and too much time to think. All of that to me is just like depression, depression, depression. And so I believe if we can get some better tools and techniques or possibly medication to assist with that, that you will feel better and you will be okay. Now, on another note, if let's say getting more support or medication or whatever takes a while, I'd encourage you to start paying attention to how you're talking to yourself and see if we can use some of those bridge statements. I've talked about those over the years where it's like, instead of trying to think positively, like fake it till you make it, because I'm not a big fan of that, because our brain's like, "Uh uh-uh, doesn't agree. But we can talk a little bit more nicely. So instead of saying like, I'm going to be too clingy and everyone's going to hate me, we could say, I'm open. I'm open to thinking about or believing maybe. I'm open to to contemplating that 
I might not be as shitty of a person as I think. Maybe. I'm open to it. I'm open to considering that I might not be a terrible person like I think. And that's just how we have to work building little by little, building a bridge over into a more positive space. So as we move through, we can get to a place where we're like, you know, I do think that it's possible that I'm nice, you know, right? We're getting more, more positive as we move. And so that's what I would encourage you to do as you try to figure out how to best treat your depression, because I'm very suspicious that that's what it is. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And let me just make sure I didn't miss anything. No, I didn't have any other comments. Okay. Question number seven says, hey, Katie, I have a question faced by many people. Um, How can someone overcome the fear of being left alone and also overcome the void of loneliness? Okay. So how do you overcome the fear of being left alone? So the fear of abandonment and also overcome the void of loneliness. Okay, gotcha. And then there was a comment that says, this matches to my BPD symptoms, I'm not surprised. And also to my question, can someone with BPD ever have so much trust in others and in themselves to not feel lonely the whole time? If this is possible, how do I get there? Okay, great questions. So it's it's a tricky dance. Now, when it comes to, uh, you know, overcoming the fear of being left alone, so the fear of abandonment and also overcoming the fear of loneliness, right? they're almost like two, they're like opposite things, right? So the fear of abandonment is, it comes out of essentially, it is, it is a huge indicator and a huge trait in those of us who have BPD or borderline personality disorder. And so when we fear abandonment, it's like, we never trust that we, this, and people don't realize this is where BPD, like where these symptoms come from, but it's like, we don't think we're good enough. It comes out of our like, distrust of ourself or feeling like we, I don't know, maybe don't know who we are and we maybe don't like what we know about ourselves. And it's kind of this like shit talking, terrible feeling about ourselves as a whole. There's tons of shame and just inadequacy that we can feel. And that is why we assume people are going to leave us. It's just a matter of time, right? I'm such a trash monster. No one's going to want to be around me. So we fear that all the time. But then we feel lonely because no one truly knows us and we tend to cut and run ahead of time, right? So in order to prevent us from being abandoned, we leave first because then at least we're in control and someone else isn't in control doing it to us. Does that make sense? I hope, I just want to kind of explain to people what what that's like and why that happens. Now, the way to overcome that fear of abandonment is honestly through DBT. Dialectical behavior therapy will be a life changer for you. To be able to be mindful and recognize when this is triggered. So when do I fear being left alone so much? Like when, when does my fear of abandonment get really loud and strong? What caused it? What does that tell me about it? Is this a trauma-based response? A lot of times it is, or is this, you know, because of the feelings I have of inadequacy about myself in romantic relationships? Like, where does it come from? I'd be curious about that. And then as DBT builds, and if any of you don't know, it it starts with mindfulness and builds through other pillars of treatment. And another huge component for you is going to be emotion regulation. And one of the biggest parts of emotion regulation is to take care of our basic needs so that we're not so vulnerable to our emotions going up and down. Meaning that if I have a cold, I should get it taken care of. And if I need to take my medicine, I should. And 
I need to sleep enough, eat enough. You know, I talk about HALT all the time. The two main acronyms of this like self-care is ABCs, please, and HALT. Now, ABCs, please, is a lot to dig through. So we'll just do the HALT. It's hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And we need to take care of those things. You can see that loneliness, and we'll dig into that next, is in there. But those those tools and techniques and having a therapist who gets that stuff is really going to help. Now, if you don't have access to a DBT or dialectical behavior therapy person, uh, attachment base could work, trauma specialist, any of those things would be really helpful too. So that's how we we overcome it. And, and there's also some like work we're going to have to do on ourselves and the way we talk to ourselves about our situations. Like I said, a lot of the BPD symptoms come out of us just feeling like we're something's wrong with us and nobody's going to like us. And so managing that and using those bridge statements to make it a little more positive will be really helpful. And then the void of loneliness. I think the truth about people feeling lonely is often we can have relationships, but the relationships aren't, what's the word? It's like, they're not intimate enough. And I don't mean intimate in a sexual way. I mean, intimate in a, I know you, you know me really way where it's like, you know about the stuff that happened with my dad, let's say. And, um, you understand when I feel emotionally overwhelmed and I can tell you what's really going on in my life. That kind of closeness and understanding and intimacy is the true killer of loneliness. Because I can't tell you how many of my patients have said like, you know, I can be in a room with like 10 of my friends and I still feel lonely. And the truth about that is like the, th that's because our relationships are not, are not that close. They don't really know us, even though they're friends, we don't, we haven't let them in. And so letting people in, being a little bit vulnerable, I know then there's that risk, that fear of abandonment. If I let them in, they're going to leave because I'm a, you know, no one would really like me, blah, blah, blah. We have to fight back against that. And that's kind of, you know, it all comes together. You can kind of see how it all, all of the tools and techniques will tie together. And so that those are really the ways that we work on it. We heal. We have to be in therapy and heal. And then the second part of that question, remember, says, can someone with BPD ever have so much trust in others and themselves that they don't feel lonely the whole time? Yes. But it's working through those steps. Again, it's it's going through the mindfulness component, recognizing when this is happening and what triggers it. Then it's, you know, um, better understanding of how to take care of yourself. If we talk, want to talk about like emotional, uh, like not being so vulnerable to our emotions and we can do the halts and the ABCs, please. And then we can use some even back burner techniques when things are overwhelming. But DBT is going to be your lifesaver. And I actually have one of my favorite workbooks. Um, it's in my Amazon store. And I think you just go to amazon.com forward slash store forward slash Katie Morton. You'll see it in there. It's by McKay and someone else. And it's just a dialectical behavior therapy workbook. And there's also Marsha Linehan, the woman who created DBT also has some great workbooks and things like that. I just, I really like that one. It just, I feel like the explanations are just really great. It's very choice. So that's how, you know, we have to talk more kindly to ourselves. We have to be more mindful of when we're starting to feel abandoned, like we might be abandoned and, and what being vulnerable to other people triggers in us because a lot of times it triggers a lot of shame and, you know, guilt and stuff like that. So taking care of yourself and figuring that out and working it through with a therapist will be really healing and it does get better, okay? Question number eight says, hey Katie, I've been in counseling for about a year and a half already, and I can't get myself to allow myself to feel emotions during session. 
this is like the theme this week before and after session i could feel really anxious and like crap but during session it's like a switch gets turned and i don't feel uh i don't really feel much sometimes it feels like i just completely zoned out but still listening to my therapist and out of touch with my feelings oh hello dissociation um and defense mechanisms Oh, so out of touch with my feelings, which I feel like it makes me hard to get any healing out of talking about things. Yeah, because you're not present. Like I'm talking about things without feeling any emotion. So it's like, yeah, I went through this thing and I thought about it on my own time and I would feel some kind of emotion. But when I'm talking about it in session, I'm completely cut off from my emotions. Any thoughts on this and what I could do? Thank you. Yes, you're dissociating. Um, or at the very least, feeling super, super overwhelmed. Okay. And that's what causes dissociation, by the way. So this complete cutoff and disconnection is protective. And therapy tends to stir this up in us where all our defense mechanisms come out because we feel vulnerable, right? We're trying to talk about things that we don't normally talk about. We're letting someone into our inner sanctum, right? Our inner thoughts. And all of that vulnerability and all of that prodding and like digging and it's overwhelming and it feels really scary. And so that's why we're shutting down. Now, <clears throat> the first thing I would have you do is tell your therapist about this. If you can email between sessions that they allow it, even though they won't reply, I know that, um, or text or something, leave a voicemail. I would do that because you're better able to communicate this, you know, outside of session. So let them know this is happening in some way. And then I want you to try a couple of things and then report back. So when we find ourselves dissociating, feeling overwhelmed, shutting down, defense mechanisms are creeping in and we just cannot participate in therapy in the way that we want, we're going to try some grounding techniques. Now, there's a couple of things. First, preemptively before a session, I want you to do a full body shake. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but if your therapist's office has a bathroom, which most of them do, or if there's nobody in the parking lot and you get out of your car, I want you to shake out but you can go to the bathroom and do it somewhere where you feel private. But I want you to shake from, from top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Get that energy out because hopefully that will keep us present for a little bit longer. So do a shake and you'll, you'll be out of breath and it's okay. But I want you to shake for at least 15 seconds, okay? This doesn't sound like long, but trust me, it'll feel like a long time. Okay, <clears throat> I want you to do that. Then when you're in session, I want you to look around your therapist's office and I want you to count how many things are blue. And then I want you to count how many things are brown. Then I want you to count how many things are black. I want you to do this. We're going to count colors, they call it, and see if that helps. Now, if that doesn't keep you present, another tool is the ABCs. So go look around the room and find something that starts, like the, the name of that thing starts with the letter A. So maybe we're looking around and, you know, I don't even know what it would be for, for let's say, randomly your therapist has like an armoire. I don't know why they'd have an armoire, maybe an apple. But anyways, look for something that starts with an A. Art. Is there art on the wall? That's a good one. Then look for something that starts with B. Books, you know, come, you got this. And then C, D, and keep doing it. Now, I know you're like, well, how am I supposed to do that and participate with my therapist? You talk to your therapist, then I want you to be like, okay, what letter am I on? I'm on B. Okay, let's look for the B. So you're doing it in between because it will keep pulling you back to where you are. Like we need you to stay where you are. I need you to be present. Um, another thing in the last option that I'll give you for this, because we're going to try these out and see which ones work, is called Thinking Putty. It's my favorite. You can get it on Amazon. I encourage you to get the large tin just because it gives you more to work with, but you can have that going too. But again, we have to tell our therapist this is happening because not being present and shutting down isn't helpful. We need to find ways to keep you grounded and present and okay. 
because being in therapy maybe just doesn't feel safe and it might not ever feel safe, but I at least want it to feel neutral where it doesn't feel like a threat and it feels okay. And we're able to, to hang in there and, you know, feel what we got to feel, say what we got to say, but let me know, keep me posted. I hope that those things help. Okay. Moving on to question number nine. Says, I don't think my question will ever get enough likes. Spoilers, it got picked randomly. So hoping it'll get picked at random. It did. Can you explain more about the differences between RSD? And if you don't recall, guys, I had a video, oh God, like a month ago now, probably, about rejection sensitive dysphoria. Okay. And so the differences between that and borderline personality disorder or BPD. In the video you did on RSD, a lot of what you're explaining sounds like BPD. It does in some ways, but I'll explain what's different, which I've been diagnosed with. But it can relate so much to the RSD too. Is it possible to have both? Yes. Or is it assumed that people with BPD have the traits of RSD plus more, which turns it into BPD? I hope this makes sense. Okay, so the difference is um, RSD, just like it sounds, Rejection sensitive dysphoria focuses solely on rejection. So it's that intense fear of rejection. Now we could talk about rejection as being the same as abandonment, but it's not. Rejection can come from people that aren't even in our lives, right? We can be rejected by a a boss, right? And they're in our life, but we don't have a relationship with them is what I'm saying, where they're not close to us. We can get rejected online, by someone we don't know. We can get rejected in a lot of ways. We can fail at a goal that we set for ourselves and that's part of rejection sensitive dysphoria as well. Now, BPD is more about abandonment, meaning that people that are important to us, that we feel we have let in at least somewhat, will leave us and we will be lonely and something must be wrong with us and that shame spiral kicks in and we just spiral out. So that's the real difference. And I know it can feel like, oh, but that's not that big of a difference. It's a huge difference. People with rejection sensitive dysphoria do not fear abandonment. And I hope that I'm I'm explaining these properly. I'll try one more time. So rejection is when someone that maybe we thought we might like does not like us back. Let's say we ask someone out for coffee and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not interested. Oh, rejected. Or let's say that we try out to be on that trivia team and we don't get picked, rejection. Or I I apply for that promotion and I don't get it, right? Those are rejection issues. They have nothing to do with abandonment. Abandonment is a much deeper concern. Abandonment is everyone that I care about is going to leave me and I'm gonna be left alone. It's loneliness driven. Rejection is not that. Rejection is like that we have such a fragile sense of self. We don't feel secure in who we are. And so someone telling us that we're not good enough, like only reminds us of that. And it's super painful because we haven't healed that. Does that make sense? And it can be really hard for us to get over. Now, BPD obviously can be hard for us to get over too. I'm not saying that one over the other, but that's the main difference. Abandonment is very different from rejection because abandonment is a deeper relationship and a closeness. And then that horrible feeling of loneliness where rejection doesn't have anything to do with having people in our lives. It's about being accepted. Make sense? I hope so. But let me know if you need more follow-ups. Okay. Our final question, question number 10. 
says, hi, Katie. Thank you for your work. Of course. I hope you're having a good day. I am so far so good. My therapist recently diagnosed me with complex PTSD or CPTSD, but all I read about online says the traumas that lead to CPTSD usually happen in early childhood. No, not the case. Still, the criteria fits my symptoms. I'm 29 now, and I don't really remember much of my childhood. Mm, That could be trauma. But I know from my parents that I've been very sensitive, that I have been a very sensitive and shy child. Could that also have something to do with it? Is it possible to have complex PTSD, although all of my traumas happened when I was 17 and older? Thanks and love from Germany. Yes, trauma doesn't care when it happened. A lot of people with complex PTSD did have childhood traumas. However, that's not, doesn't matter. It, if it happened when you're 17 and older, it's still, for those of you who don't know, complex trauma happens when we have repeated traumas and it really erodes at our sense of self and our ability to trust our own feelings and thoughts. And it can make it so difficult that, you know, that we find ourselves in other scary situations because we don't trust our own inner gut. We look to other people to make decisions for us and, can make us really difficult in relationships. We can have a tough tough time regulating our emotions because of all the trauma that we've sustained. So complex PTSD can happen no matter what age. It really, the only, ca- the, the main thing is that we have had multiple traumas in our life. That's it. So it doesn't matter what age. And I know a lot of the information out there probably does focus on childhood because a lot of people who have complex PTSD have had trauma starting younger and building throughout their life, but it doesn't actually matter when it started. Okay, cool. Now, the second component says that you don't really remember much of your childhood, but you know from your parents, you were a very sensitive and shy child. That could have led to us, and I'm not saying this is true. I'm just hypothesizing with you because you don't remember much of it, which is always a red flag as a therapist. If if it's normal to not have like a full memory, right? Because those memories aren't being used. I'm not pulling actively from my childhood at like seven or eight. I mean, like, oh my God, remember that day my brother and I had a mud fight? We had a lot of mud fights or built that fort in the woods. Like I'm not actively retrieving that data. So it slowly gets harder and harder for me to retrieve fully. And at every time you retrieve memories also, by the way, they're changed because just the act of retrieving them alters them slightly. Isn't that fascinating? It's in, it's all in my book. Oh, and I knocked over my chest, but it's all in my book, Trauma. You can pick it up, order yours today. It'll be available September 7th. Um, But anyways, the fact that you don't remember it tells me something about that and makes me curious. And I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if as a very sensitive and shy child that you did experience some traumas because if we're super sensitive and we're not very outgoing, it can be, it can, it's almost like, not to say that we're like more vulnerable to being bullied or hurt, but we are in some ways, because if we are a highly sensitive person, I would encourage you to watch my video about HSPs. and there's a great book, The Highly Sensitive Person, written by like essentially the the grandmother of this. But she, anyway, she talks a lot in her book about the sensitivity component making us more vulnerable to harm and hurt. And so that means that we maybe don't have as much resilience built up that allows us to push through or weather life storms. And so even though you can't really maybe remember particular traumas, you could have been traumatized as a child as well. And not having that memory it makes it a little bit difficult, but at the very least you've had traumas happen in adulthood. And that would be why you are diagnosed with CPTSD. I hope that just clears it up. I know sometimes 
think life's complicated, right? We all have our own unique situations and experiences. And I believe that you being a very sensitive and shy, shy child could have had something to do with your complex PTSD, but also the fact that you've had repeated traumas as an adult is just, it, it's the same. It, that's all the criteria is it's not age dependent. This isn't like a childhood diagnosis. So yeah, I hope that, that clears that up, but you should pre-order my book Traumatized today. Thank you so all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Sean and I, if you don't know, are taking next week off. It's our anniversary. We've been married for eight years and we are going to take a break, but you will have a podcast. It'll be coming out. It's one that I did uh, before we moved with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman. Um, because of the release or the pre-order availability of my book, I'm going to try to focus more and more of my content on trauma and trauma healing, trauma bonding, uh, child on child sexual abuse. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. So get ready for the next few months. It'll be very trauma based content, but that will be what you see next week. So hold your questions if you have them for the week after, and I'll be coming right back to talk with you. But thank you so much for listening. Please share this with a friend. It really, really helps. The more people we can reach, the better. You never know who you're going to help by sharing this on your Facebook page or, you know, sharing on Instagram. The more we talk about this, the more we share, the better off we all are. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and I will see you next time. Bye. Ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always